Hello and welcome to Bill Allen's live Facebook study. If you're watching live, hello and welcome at 3 p.m. Central Time on Tuesday, June the 21st uh, in 2022. Nice to have you joining along. If you're watching a little bit later than live, that's okay too. Glad to have you. Bill Allen here from very hot downtown Tyler, Texas in the West Irwin Church of Christ. Uh, glad to have you joining us as we continue our trek through uh, the daily bible and we're reading through the bible in one year and you know what the end of june is it is the halfway mark we're not quite there yet but we're getting close and you're thinking wow are we ever going to get to the new testament yes we will <clears throat> in october because the old testament is a lot bigger but that's okay because there's a lot of exciting some very encouraging and very challenging stuff in these old testament books and we're certainly going to see that in the um in the books of two men uh, that are authors of scripture great prophets of god that we read about uh, and they are hosea and amos uh, they're eighth century prophets which means that they wrote and lived during the 700s bc hundreds of years before jesus uh, approximately the same time as Isaiah lived and uh, wrote his book of prophecy as well and shared God's word uh, with the people of his day, primarily in Jerusalem and in the southern kingdom of Judah. At this time, uh, we're uh, going to be looking at a couple of prophets that are going to be speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, we looked at the prophets Joel and Jonah uh, last week, and remember that uh, Joel, of course, probably the first one of those written, uh, Elijah and Elisha before that, but Joel comes along maybe sometime in the very late 900s, the very late, um, uh, eight, rather the very late 800s, right around um, uh, maybe not very long before these 8th century prophets in the 700s. And then Jonah is very early in the 700s, which would mean like 780s, 790s, something like that. But, um, and he is, uh, he writes his letter and prophesies in Nineveh, uh, the capital of Assyria. And what a great uh, story that is, that big fish story in the book of Jonah. Uh, much more than a fish story. But that was a, a good study. I love that study. And then, of course, uh, we're coming now to the rest of the 8th century prophets. The first of these we're covering are Amos and Hosea. Hosea first. Hosea is the first in the order of the minor prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. Remember, those minor prophets are only minor because they're shorter, their messages are just as strong and just as powerful as any other you find in scripture, including uh, the major prophets of Daniel and Ezekiel, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Again, Isaiah somewhat of a contemporary with these. The next prophet we look at will be Micah, and Micah certainly is a contemporary of Isaiah. Both Isaiah and Micah prophesy to the southern kingdom of Judah after the kingdom divided, after uh, the days of Saul, David, and Solomon, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam uh, went with his young friends rather than his elders and took bad advice and counsel, and Jeroboam led the northern tribes into forming a new nation, the, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel with Samaria as its capital, and the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, its capital, still faithful to the line 
of David. As we're reading through these prophets, we also, because this is a, a Bible in chronological order, uh, edited by F. Lagarde Smith, we read about these prophets during the narratives that we read about uh, in the Old Testament historical books, uh, such as Kings and Chronicles. And so as we're talking about those during this time, then we recognize that um, uh, we're serving during, we start with the kingdom uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam II, not the one that divided the people, but Jeroboam II is the king in Samaria in Israel. And uh, he is a very wicked king, just as his, uh, <laughs> the previous Jeroboam was. But it's a very prosperous time. In the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria, they, they sound a lot like 21st century America, actually. Very wealthy, very proud, um, uh, very unrighteous and sinful. And we certainly see that in our land uh, today. We see good as well, and there was good during those times, such as these men who prophesied, uh, Hosea and uh, Amos, that we're looking at today. But there are a lot of others that, um, that are uh, not so good, including the leadership. Hard to find a good king, as we've said, in the northern kingdom of Israel. A few in the southern kingdom of Judah, but even not very many there. Uh, during the 8th century BC, the, North, the, uh, uh, the world empire is the Assyrians uh, with their capital of Nineveh. And they will take the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, into exile, and destroy Samaria in 721 BC. But the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem will survive, and primarily because of the preaching of Isaiah and Micah and the faithful work of King Hezekiah reigning in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom of Israel, not so lucky, not so blessed, because they were not faithful. Uh, even though you, we read these words from Hosea and Amos, it's hard to believe that they would not respond. And yet we understand that because these words uh, cut to the quick again here in our land and in our day as well. So Hosea's great message is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We read that in chapter 6, verse 6. It's a passage that Jesus himself will quote a couple of times in the Gospel of Matthew. And, um, and so we start with Hosea, uh, again, uh, proclaiming and prophesying, preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. And maybe this is a good time to mention, when we say prophesying, it's not just for telling the future. I mean, the prophets do some of that, that's true. But their primary uh, goal is to speak to the people of their day to tell the people what's happened in the past, what's happening now, and what is likely going to happen in the future, according to God's will and their response. But what they're hoping to do is to uh, get a good response that will turn the tide and bring the people back towards God. That is what they're doing. That's what they're trying to do. They're primarily spokesmen for God. And, um, and so their concern is for their day and time. Yes, they look ahead, as we saw with Joel in Joel chapter 2, that great prophecy of, about uh, God bringing the Holy Spirit that we see fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. We know that's the case because Peter in Acts chapter 2, as Luke records, quotes Joel 2 and says, this is what Joel was talking about. This is fulfilling that prophecy. We don't always get that. 
So sometimes we have to put two and two together, such as the great 53rd chapter of Isaiah we know can only be talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, but sometimes it's most of the time it's just not quite that clear. When we read Hosea and Amos, we realize that uh, these are words, again, that could be spoken to every generation and certainly to our generation even uh, today, 2,000 years after Jesus, um, 27, almost 2,800 years after these words uh, have been written. And so Hosea is speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he emphasizes relationship. God wants to be in relationship with his people. That's what Hosea's primary message is. And this becomes impossible because of Israel's spiritual adultery. Just as a husband or wife who cheats on their spouse is guilty of adultery, God tells his people that uh, they were to be a faithful bride, and yet instead of being faithful people of God, uh, they worshiped and served other gods and committed, basically, God says, spiritual adultery. Uh, Hosea speaks of knowledge of God and knowing God. One of the great passages in uh, chapter 4 that we'll look at in a moment in uh, Hosea that's repeated a few times is that the people uh, are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. And as we read Hosea, as you read Hosea, as you have read it, if you're keeping up, then you realize that uh, it's not just talking about uh, knowing facts. It's not saying knowing about God, but it's talking about knowing God intimately. As a husband and wife know each other. And the image there is something that's incredible. And Jesus would, uh, again, quote these words from Hosea. And he would condemn the religious leaders of his day, who were very much like the people of Hosea's day, who, were, who knew all about God but didn't know God personally. They were not in a close relationship with him. And instead of maintaining and cultivating that relationship, they worshipped and served other gods. And instead of relying upon God, uh, they trusted in their own military or they trusted in other nations. Hosea condemns them for reaching out to Egypt or to the world empire power of Assyria for help rather than calling on the God who has delivered them so many times in the past. And Hosea condemns them for that. The first few chapters, though, are incredible because Hosea is told to make his life a, a metaphor of the relationship that God has with his people. It's very amazing because God tells Hosea, I want you to go get a wife uh, uh, and pick her, who uh, pick a woman who is a prostitute and go and find her and marry her. And he marries a woman by the name of Gomer. And they have two children and these children are given um, uh, pro uh, prophetic names as well. And so as they're doing this, as Hosea is living his life and, and having his uh, two or three children and their prophetic names, his wife leaves him and goes back to prostitution. And God says, it is just like my people have done. I saved them out of a life of misery and to uh, uh, pay me back. They went back into it. They went back into that life of sin. But then uh, Hosea in chapter 3 is told, I want you to go and I want you to find your wife and I want you to redeem her, to buy her back and to um, uh, bring her back into your home. Because in the same way, God's wonderful love 
It's reaching out to his people so that he can restore the relationship and closeness that they have had before. Of course, Isaiah emphasizes Israel's unfaithfulness. We see this again in several great passages. I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, uh, Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hosea 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Again, they don't know God. They're not close to him. They don't have an intimate relationship with him. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God uh, in the land. Verse 2, there is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. Verse 4, But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Hosea 4 verse 6. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. What a great statement, a horrible statement, but a very powerful one that is just as true in our day as it was in the 8th century BC in Israel, in Hosea's day. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. And just as in Jesus' day, Hosea says, and the leaders are no better. The priests and the people alike are turning away from God, turning to other gods, turning to disgraceful acts. Um, verse 8 of Hosea 4, they feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be this saying, like people, like priests, I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Like people, like priests, the priests are just as evil as the rest of the people instead of calling them to faithfulness like Hosea was doing. And so God says, okay, like people, like priests, just as I will punish and destroy the people, I will punish and destroy their leaders as well. And then this great passage in Hosea chapter 6, just a great, wonderful, powerful passage. There are several verses in your Old Testament that you really need to have memorized or know where to find them or have them shaded, highlighted, underlined something. And Hosea 6 verse 6 is one of those. We'll start reading in Hosea 6 verse 1. And this is a little bit of interaction between the people and God. The people start out saying, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. All of that sounds good. <laughs> They're saying the right things. They just don't feel it in their hearts. It's not coming from deep within. They're not sincere. They're not genuine. It's all externals. It's all an act. And so they say, oh, if we turn to God, he'll, he'll take us back. Sure he will. He always does, basically. Now hear God's response. 
in Hosea 6, starting in verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim, another name for the northern kingdom of Israel? What can I do with you, Judah, the southern kingdom? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. It comes and then it's gone. Uh, these hundred degree days in Texas, I don't even think the dew has time to come at all. But Hosea says, just like the morning dew, the morning mist, it comes and it's there and then the sun comes up and it's gone. That's the way this people are. That's the way they are uh, saying, hey, let's turn back to God. And then they turn away, go back to their spiritual adultery with other gods and immorality. Therefore, God says in Hosea 6, verse 5, Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. And then verse 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So many other passages are similar. One we'll read from Amos 5 in just a few moments. But it's a, it's a passage in Hosea 6, verse 6, again, that Jesus repeats and quotes in the Gospel of Matthew, talking to the religious leaders of his day, reminding them that God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. It's not that God doesn't want sacrifices. They were commanded in the law, as were the burnt offerings, but they did not take the place of that personal, heartfelt, sincere, genuine relationship with God acknowledgement of God, knowing God, not just knowing about him, knowing him. That's what Hosea says God wants. That's what he wanted with his people. It's what he wanted all along. It's what he wants with us, not just externals, not just going to church. Going to church is important and vital. I've given all of my life to encourage people to do that and to help those that do come to that close personal relationship with God. It's not that that's not important. It is. But it doesn't take the place of that knowing God from deep within, having that personal, driven, genuine relationship with God. Hosea says there's no, there's no substitute for that. And you can't substitute burnt offerings and sacrifices for it any more than you can uh, substitute the worship of our day for it. There has to be a close, personal, inner relationship with God. Hosea says, and again, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says the exact same thing, even quoting when they criticized him for calling Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his apostles and going to his home with, quote, sinners. They, they criticized him for that. They criticized him at other points. And Jesus said, haven't you read? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus was trying to remind them of Hosea's words. Uh, God, uh, Hosea continues, and we won't look at these, but he speaks of God's punishment and forgiveness in chapters 7 through 14. He calls on the people to trust in God and to know that if they will, if they will come clean, if they will genuinely uh, come back to God, then he will forgive them and he will accept them. Uh, for example, in chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, of course, speaking of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, but later on in the book of Matthew, uh, they will remember that Jesus and his earthly family, his parents, Joseph and Mary, when they had to flee to Egypt, and God sent the message to them that the Herod that was trying to kill them was gone, and they should come back. 
And uh, Matthew remembers this verse, Hebrews 11, verse 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. And yet God says in, in this heartfelt statement in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you badly? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. God says, I will be merciful because I'm God. Well, uh, that promise continues throughout chapters 11 through 13, except it's a promise of punishment if they refuse to repent. But again, Hosea ends in chapter 14 with a great promise of forgiveness, of restoration, of God restoring that relationship with his people, just like Hosea's relationship was restored with his wife, Gomer. Um, God says, if you'll just if you'll just come back to me with a heartfelt repentance, I will come back to you. So many great statements in Hosea. We've looked at some. Uh, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Those first six verses of chapter four. This statement that we didn't read in chapter seven, verse eight, Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Ephraim is a pancake. Israel is a pancake, basically. When you cook a pancake, do you not flip it over or do you just let it sit there? That's what he says Israel is like. It's like a pancake, not flipped over. It's done. It looks good on one side, but the other side is raw and horrible, and that was the way God described his people. This great statement in chapter 8, verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. We hear that from politicians sometimes when they're trying to make a point. Um, always a little suspicious of politicians that quote scripture, and yet, uh, number one, I'm not sure they know what they're talking about, and number two, the rest of their lives just uh, don't come across as, as caring at all about what God's word says. In this case, Hosea tells his people, you're sowing the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. And it was not pretty when the Assyrians came and took them into captivity. And then this passage that I mentioned earlier in chapter 11, verse one, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, and so this great statement in Hosea six, again, verse six, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire acknowledgement of God, knowing God, rather than burnt offerings. Well, I want us to take a quick look at the book of Amos, because we got a lot to do on Thursday, looking at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, but also looking at another great prophet, the prophet Micah. So we may come back a little bit to Hosea and Amos as we look at Micah and begin Isaiah. But first, the book of Amos, just a couple of books later after the book of Hosea, again to the northern kingdom of Israel, again during the 8th century. Um, and it, for Amos, he doesn't just prophesy against Judah and Israel, but he has oracles against several nations, speeches against the nations in chapters 1 and 2, including Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom and its capital, Jerusalem. He has great rebuke and criticism of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's his focus, just like it was Hosea's focus in, verse, in chapters 3 through 6. And then in chapters 7 through 9, he has uh, several visions, Amos does. He sees a, a locust attacking 
uh, the people of God. Fire. He he has a vision of a plumb line. And um, you know what a plumb line is. If you're hanging wallpaper, you need to use a plumb line. The reason I know that is because one time I didn't. And so you hold up that plumb line so that you'll be sure that the, that the uh, ends are straight. Well, I didn't do that hanging wallpaper one time, and it started really nice, and then it started going like this. <laughs> oh, boy, we'll never forget that story. Uh, but that's what happens when you don't use a plumb line, and that's what God says he's going to do with his people. He's going to put them up against the plumb line, and they do not measure up. He says Israel is like a basket of ripe fruit, overripe fruit. Um, their time has come. And they will be punished. And then he also finally has a vision of the Lord at the altar, ready to act in judgment. There's a promise of punishment. But again, there is the promise of forgiveness and restoration if the people would just come around. Just come around. Amos, like uh, other prophets such as Elijah and Isaiah, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, can be very sarcastic at times. At times, listen to these words in Amos chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. That's the capital of Israel. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Again, just a terrible, terrible word of condemnation of, about what's coming. And then verse 4, go to Bethel and sin, one of the places where Jeroboam set up a golden calf so that the people wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship when the kingdom divided. Go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Bring leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. But God sees and he knows what's in the heart and he knows those are all externals and he will not accept it, Amos says. And then in Amos chapter 4, one of the great chapters out of Scripture in all of the Bible, Old Testament, and New, a powerful statement. Uh, very similar to Isaiah chapter 1 and Psalm 50 and uh, the words we just read in, in Hosea chapter 6 and what we'll read in Micah chapter 6. These words in Amos chapter 5 are so very powerful. Listen to what the prophet says. Hear him speaking to the 8th century B.C. Israel, but also hear him speaking uh, to 21st century America and to you and to me to the church of the 21st century. Amos 5, beginning at verse 4, This is what the Lord says to Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. All of those places were places of idolatry, idol worship, worship of gods that weren't God at all. Verse 6 of Amos 5, Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, yes, those constellations, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. 
with a blinding flash. He destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. Sound familiar? Verse 11 of Amos 5. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Again, Amos and Hosea prophesied at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel had it all. They were very wealthy. Their borders had been extended. Jeroboam II had a great material prosperity, but spiritually they were depraved and in poverty. And Hosea and now Amos called them out for it. Verse 12, For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppose the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. If you're smart, you won't say a word. Isn't that sad? Isn't that horrible? Doesn't that describe much of what goes on in our country even today? Sometimes even in our churches where someone will raise a question or an issue and they'll, they'll be smothered because it's a threat or are perceived as a threat to those who are in powerful places of authority and they don't want that authority questioned because they don't want to lose the power. That's what we see in our nation, in our world today. May the church not be that way. The people of God were that way in the days of Micah and Hosea, Isaiah and Amos. Amos 5 verse 14, this great, great passage. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. They will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Woe to Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? There were some of them who were saying, oh, bring on the day of the Lord, but they didn't realize that God knew their evil hearts. He knew their injustice towards the poor, towards those around them, towards the innocent. He knew their power plays. He knew their wealth was, was controlling every decision they made rather than what was right. And so he tells them, hate what is evil, love what is good, promote justice in the courts and in the land, help the poor, uh, be faithful to your God. But they would not do it. And because of that, the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness and punishment, not light. And then Amos 5, verse, verse 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. They hadn't stopped going to church. They just had stopped serving the Lord. Verse 22, Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Verse 24, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness 
like a never failing stream. That's what God wants. That great statement in Amos chapter 5, verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. All the, all the worship, all the service, all the good things, they don't take the place of, of being righteous, of doing what is right, doing what is according to God's word, the Bible, uh, acting with justice. Later on, as you'll read, coming up in Micah chapter 6, he asks the question, What does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Hosea 6, Hosea had said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Knowing God, acknowledgement of God, a close personal relationship with God, rather than burnt offerings. And now Amos does the same. In Amos 5, verse 24, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Let us in our world today, in our nation, in our communities, in our homes, in our churches, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Look forward to sharing with you from the prophet Micah on Thursday. God bless.